Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Welcome back to the second hour of The Interpreter Radio Show. This is sponsored by The Interpreter Foundation a nonprofit organization dedicated to the scriptures, doctrine, history, and practices of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can find us at interpreterfoundation.org. That's interpreterfoundation.org. I'm Bruce Webster. I'm here with my co-host, Robert Boylan. Okay, for the second hour, we have a number of topics to cover. The first is we're going to talk about the latest article at interpreterfoundation.org. This is a review of the book, uh, Ronald by Ronald B. Huggins, Lighthouse, Jared and Ta- Gerald and Sandra Tanner, Despised and Beloved Critics of Mormonism, published by Signature Books. Uh, the review is by Alan Wyatt, who is actually named in the book, therefore has a, <laughs> has a certain interest in what it is. Uh, and uh, <coughs> the... Uh, <laughs> the, short, the short version is that the... the book is a, a uncritical and overly generous <laughs> review of the lives of the Tanners. Uh, and this, this is not to cast aspersions on them as people, as Christians, as individuals, uh, but it is to address the, the nature and intent of their actions uh, from someone who was, uh, <coughs> uh, as, he, as he puts his knowledge and interest of the Tanners, goes back just under 45 years and uh, found out he, he found out the book just relatively recently when he found out that he was actually, a friend told him, oh yeah, you're mentioned in it. Uh, so he goes through the review. The, <coughs> the Tanners, of course, were, were very early, prominent, and influential critics of the church, uh, uh, devoted themselves to... Uh, criticizing doctrinal and historical issues concerning the church and uh, did their best. And, and uh, Ronald, or excuse me, Alan does a good job of pointing us out that Huggins tends to portray them as well-meaning and well-intentioned and so on uh, without uh, really addressing the lives and families that were damaged, disrupted, divided, uh, over the things that the Tanners published, which would be fine if what they published was accurate, but frankly, a lot of what they published was not accurate uh, or was distorted to the point of being misleading. Uh, so it's a, re- it's a review I can, I can strongly recommend. I can't re- recommend the book itself. Uh, Robert, thoughts and comments? Uh, first of all, um, I haven't actually read the Huggins book. I've read lo- loads of books by the Tanners, um, but not the Huggins book. Uh, and based on this review, I probably won't. But to quote a friend of mine, and I'm not going to name names, but you know who I'm talking about, he said that, quote, there are Soviet-era biographers of Stalin who thinks this book is too much historiography. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it, it seems to be based on Alan's review, and well, I've been told by other friends who have read the book that um, it, it's basically historiography. It's not actual biography, like a Bushman biography. But I love the opening title, Largely Shadow, Short of Reality. Yeah. Because, of course, the magnum opus by the Tanners is their book, Mormonism, Shadow Reality. And basically, when it comes to, especially evangelical Protestant critics, but like some atheistic critics of the church as well, even today, a lot of their argument simply comes 
albeit garbled, to the uh, that volume or other works by the Tanners, like the Changing World of Mormonism and other topics as well. And, you know, they've been active in anti-Mormon ministry since, like, the late 50s. Um, and once we're going to go through the review, we'll actually see some of the reasons why, like, a very fundamentalist black-and-white thinking of theology, which they still hold to these days. I mean, if you read their book, uh, The Case for Christianity, um, they reject macro-revolution. They tend to be favorable towards a global flood and some other things that, th- using the same standards they use to critique Mormonism, they would never apply to the Bible. Yeah. Uh, there's a very good inter, uh, interview between Sandra, Gerald's passed away since 2006, but Sandra Tanner and Rick Benish on the Gospel Tangents uh, YouTube podcast. And uh, he basically asks her about like biblical difficulties like Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and the documentary hypothesis. And everyone should look at it. It's, it's a joy to behold that she obviously uh, engages in double standards, which a lot of critics do as well. And, and, and beyond that, uh, and again, I don't want to sound like a broken record. I, I encountered anti-Mormon literature within months of joining the church. I had well-meaning friends uh, in high school start handing me anti-Mormon pamphlets, which is actually what triggered my interest in Mormon history and Mormon doctrine. Uh, the uh, <coughs> uh, <laughs> true, true story I had. I, I had uh, one, uh, actually she was my very first girlfriend, uh, and it didn't come up when we dated, that was just my freshman year of, of high school, but uh, sometime later in high school, uh, she was giving me anti-Mormon tracts, and uh, I turned around and, and wrote her uh, about a three or four page paper showing the need for actual baptism by authority all out of the New Testament, and gave it to her and asked her if she'd been baptized and who by, and she never brought up the subject again. Uh, <laughs> so, but, but I've, I've never quite understood that impulse. Uh, I'm, I'm a former Episcopalian. I have nothing but a, affection for the Episcopal Church. Uh, my mom attended to the end of her life. Uh, when I was home in San Diego, I'd often attend with her on Sunday. Uh, I, you know, I don't believe the Episcopal Church has, you know, is the true church. I don't believe they have authority, so on and so forth. But I, I'm just, you know, God bless them. They're, they're, they're good people. Uh, and uh, this, this, of course, is a syndrome we've seen often, and we've seen really since the, the foundation of the church, that people just can't leave it alone. Uh, and uh, they feel a need. I've... I watched this, uh, and, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing, Robert. I've, I've been seeing these sort of waves of uh, uh, anti-Mormon commentary on Twitter. Uh, and once again, it's people who just can't seem to, you know, well, you know, you're not really Christian. Uh, it's like, compared to what? <laughs> shall, shall we talk about the full range of Christian denominations? And there's a particular reason why you've, you've moved... Latter-day Saints just slightly out of that, or maybe way out of that. Uh, so the <clears throat> one could argue, you know, with our with our missionary work. I mean, I I served my mission at a time when we actively taught on flannel boards the uh, you know foundation of prophets and apostles the church built up on top of it and would pull out the foundation saying what happens when you lose the 
the apostles in the church falls. I actually remember having one investigator. We were building up to that. And I started to ask that question. He says, oh, no, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> because the stuff, stuff above the foundation wasn't adhering to the final. So as soon as you removed the foundation, it all fell down. I always thought it was quite effective. Uh, but, uh, but if you look, we, we do not uh, speak badly of other religions. And, of course, we have possibly, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's probably a few denominations out there that might have a more encompassing view of salvation and who gets saved. Uh, but it's certainly not the mass of Christianity. Uh, in fact, if anything, uh, I think Christianity has moved more towards Latter-day Saint views of afterlife and post-mortal evangelism and what happens to, you know, uh, unbaptized infants or unbaptized children and so on. Uh, they have moved in that direction over the past hundred years, uh, whereas we've, made, we've maintained our doctrine, I think, because if they've found their own doctrine just unsupportable. Robert, your thoughts and comments. Um, well, just to tie into what you said earlier, like um, Alan does point this out that Huggins, the author, is not shy or subtle in his open expressions of admiration for the Tanners. He strikes in adjectives, describes their motives and actions uh, is unfailingly positive. He never deals with the real-world effects that Tanners had on hundreds if not thousands of families, including Alan's own family. That choice by Huggins is understandable. It wouldn't fit with the image that he wants to create for those good warriors. But also, in the very next paragraph, um, he seems to want to parallel Gerald Tanner with the father of one of the leading Protestant biblical scholars of all time, F.F. F. Bruce. The um, biographer, not, not Alan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, Huggins is the one who's trying to parallel. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, he seems oblivious to how this larger-than-life characterization of the, the, the Tanners are at times unbelievable. For instance, Huggins quoted biblical scholar F.F. F. Bruce. Uh, he's deceased now, but like F.F. F. Bruce was like one of the leading New oh, Testament yeah. scholars. I've, I've of got all time. his yeah. New Testament history, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he wrote commentaries on Hebrews and other stuff as well, including Johannine texts. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce's comment about he's F.F. F. Bruce's father, that Bruce never had to l unlearn anything I'd learned from him. Huggins' assessment? The same can be said of Gerald. Oh, the glowing accolade, early, uh, the early on application of Bruce's comment to Gerald Tanner seems unearned when Huggins later explains how the Tanners were duped by DJ Nelson and had to backtrack their support of him. It is such, an self, uh, it is such self unawareness that evidences Huggins' uncritical approach to his subject matter. It is also evidence, at least to the reader, that Huggins' work is historiography and not balanced history. Yeah. So, again, I haven't read the biography, although I've read a great deal of the works of the Tanners, including their magnum opus. But, uh, yeah, I mean, to parallel F.F. F. Bruce in some way with <laughs> Gerald Tanner is a huge insult to F.F. F. Bruce. It is, it is. And, again, it, again, what we seem to be dealing with here is historiography and not biography. Yeah. Um, you know, if you want to do a biography of the Tanners, go ahead. They have, for better or worse, like an important role in, say, modern LDS studies, you know, um, since the 50s. But at the same time, um, do something a la Bushman's Roughstone role in their actual biography and not historiography or even, heaven forbid, um, mind reading like Dan Vogel. You know? Yeah, oh, there you go. <laughs> hey, Dan, how are you? Uh, <laughs> Debate offer is still there, Dan. <laughs> okay, that said, <laughs> let's go on to another topic. We've got about uh, 25 minutes here. Uh, the church recently announced it was, I think it was 36 new missions, yep. uh, which is the biggest, uh, growth in missions in quite some time. And this has to, you know, 
I, I forget how many years ago it was that the church changed the ages for missionaries, but they had this enormous surge. Went up to, I think they had 85,000. And then once that surge worked through, it started dropping back down. I think it got all the way down to just under 60,000. I could be wrong on that. But then it's been uh, climbing steadily. And I think a lot of this has to do with President Nelson's uh, focus on missionary work and on uh, gathering Israel. And uh, most recently, Robert, Robert just confirmed, I thought it was, it's around 72,000 yeah. uh, full-time missionaries. And I think this is one of the reasons why we suddenly had this burst of uh, 36 new missions announced. I was telling Robert I had a very touching scene. I, I was in Denver for three weeks on business when I was flying home on Friday. Uh, my flight back to Salt Lake had uh, uh, about a dozen or so missionaries who were coming home from the uh, uh, Dallas East Mission, and most of whom were sister missionaries. And on the same flight, the flight that was the plane that was coming in was coming in from Salt Lake that we were going to take home. And there was a whole group of missionaries who were coming in on that one. Uh, and uh, a lot of them were sisters. And it was fun and touching because the sisters were all standing there. And as each sister would come off the plane, they would cheer, they would wave, they would give them hugs as they came in, welcome them to the mission, you know, told them what a wonderful mission it was, and so on. And it was obvious that this just... Uh, was very moving and very reassuring to these sister missionaries who were coming in. Uh, the the work is moving forward. Yeah, the, the rate of growth of the church has slowed down. Uh, there's, it hasn't stopped. The church is not shrinking, contrary to everything you hear. Uh, it's not growing much in the U.S., but uh, it's uh, growing quite significantly elsewhere. I my personal opinion remains that. The church in Africa in the 21st century will resemble the church in Latin America in the 20th century. Uh, the, the explosive growth there is just remarkable in terms of missions, in terms of temples. Uh, and what's particularly remarkable, uh, our interpreter's own Jeffrey Bradshaw has uh, served two missions there, and he's part of the Interpreter Foundation's film project to talk about the church in Africa. Uh, his observations is that the level of activity and retention is remarkable, particularly compared to the United States. That it's not just that, uh, as frankly was often the case during the early years in Latin America, you'd get a lot of baptisms and then everyone would just stop coming, that uh, these uh, young men and women are joining the church, they are remaining active, they are going on missions, uh, and they are building up the church in their country. Uh, so I think we have some very interesting times ahead uh, for the church. Uh, Robert, your thoughts on things? Yeah, just let me quote the uh, first uh, paragraph of the um, November 1st uh, release. Um, to accommodate uh, rising numbers of missionaries now at more than 72,000, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will open 36 new missions on July 1st, 2024. Uh, this puts the total number of missions at 450, the highest number in church history. And if you look at the uh, dispers geographical dispersal, it kind of uh, lines up what, what you said about Africa. Uh, there's actually nine new missions oh, in Africa. I didn't realize it was that many. Yeah, uh, there's <laughs> going to be two in the Democratic uh, Republic of Congo. Yeah. I'm sure Jeff yep. Bradshaw would love that. Oh, yeah. Uh, two in Ghana. There's one in Kenya, Madagascar, two in Nigeria, and one in Sierra Leone. 
and when it comes to Central and South America, Mexico will get two, and uh, there will be like a number in South America, Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Ecuador, Ecuador, and Peru will also get one. And there's also a new mission in Japan, um, interestingly enough. Oh, well. that is interesting. Um, and also in the Caribbean, uh, Dominican Republic Santo will get one as well, and two in Asia, Cambodia and Thailand. And, of course, Utah gets a few as well because Utah wants to be greedy. Um, <laughs> well, but, and, and there's <laughs> lots of baptisms. You know, in our own stake at the, at the start of the year, uh, and I live in southwest Provo, uh, so our whole stake occupies, you know, like, it's, it's actually it's a little bigger than I, I thought it would be, but it, it's still just, you know, me- measured so many blocks wide, so many blocks high, and so on. Uh, the, uh, at the start of the year, when we're setting state goals, uh, President Merz, our state president, uh, was saying, okay, you know, let's, let's, I think last year we'd had 17 convert baptisms uh, in the stake, and he said, let's, let's set a goal for, for 23. We, we've already passed that. Uh, you know, these are convert baptisms right in the heart of, you know, southwest Provo. Uh, and uh, there is, there is a, an awful lot of successful missionary work within Utah. Anyway. Yeah, and this kind of time, uh, just to go back to what you said about the uh, pre-COVID uh, uh, figures. Yeah. Um, and those are more missionaries are never serving during the 67,000 who were sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ just before the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the increase, as you know, is in thanks to the large part to the church president and prophet Russell M. Nelson's April 2022 call for more missionaries. And then it quotes um, a number of people, such as Kuntanala Cook. So, yeah, it kind of shows, like, um, maybe in, like, some of the more uh, developed, for lack of a term, countries, like in Europe and so forth, there's stagnation. And I see oh, yeah. someone who's from Ireland. But um, it is really heartening to see, like, say, the growth of the church in Central and South America, but also especially in Africa as well. Yeah. Um, that work has really exploded since, like, the um, especially with the uh, lifting of the priest and temple restriction in the 70s. And, um, yeah, yeah. And a number of other teams have done well. And, like, uh, Interpreter Foundation has actually have a series of articles so far, not by Brad alone, by uh, Jeff Bradshaw and others that um, detail, like, the work, at least in um, Congo. Uh, yes. Which is, Kinshasa, yeah. Yeah. Which would be re- representative of like most of the rest of Africa as well. The uh, and, and <laughs> okay, Merge, merging two two topics here, and I, I I'm trying to remember if if I brought this up last month in private conversation or this was this was on the air. Forgive me if I'm saying it again. Chalk it up to my old age. The uh, I saw a, a comment on Twitter uh, from a, a uh, internal critic. I, I don't, I'm not sure I can, uh, a Latter-day Saint who was saying, oh yeah, said, you know, if President Nelson dies and President Oaks becomes the prophet, you're gonna see a whole lot of people leave the church. Uh, and, and my first thought was why, and then my, my subsequent thought is, you know, I'll bet the members outside the U.S. will think it's just wonderful. And I think most members inside the U.S. will think it's wonderful. There's, there's, there is a tendency to sort of, uh, <clears throat> given that it's something they tend to criticize the church for, 
my observation is there tends to be a group think, group think tendency among critics of the church. They think everyone thinks like them, and they just they they sort of expect the church to fall apart any day now. Uh, and it's not happening. My standard comment is: if you think the church is shrinking, all you have to do is track the number of stakes, uh, because you need you actually need a certain number of people in order for a stake to function. The church regularly actually disbands stakes if if the area population gets small enough, but the number of stakes is a monotonically increasing function. That is, the number of stakes. I think, I think back around the turn of the century, the church did a lot of consolidation, so there was a brief time when the total number of stakes in the church actually shrank by a small amount. But other than that, it's been steadily increasing uh, for 50 years, which is the length of my, 55 years, length of my membership of the church. And again, there were like 2.7, 2.8 million members when I joined. Uh, we're up to 17 million now. Anyway, uh, thoughts or another topic? Because we still have about uh, 15 minutes well, here. Well, just maybe go back to Alan White's review of the uh, Huggins uh, biography, <laughs> The Tanners. Uh, okay. Because it often comes up like, uh, well, Gerald Tanner, after he prayed about it, uh, you know, and there's issues there, uh, came to the conclusion that the uh, Salamander letter was a forgery. So, like, uh, you know, the Tanners are, like, the heroes when it comes to the whole Mark Huffman affair. Uh, he kind of notes, um, you know, with documentation that um, that wasn't always the case. Like, the, no. the Tanners were actually duped a lot by the Huffman forgeries. Um, and I bring this up because, like, I actually made Alan aware of this particular uh, work by the Tanners that's not really well known for obvious reasons from 1981. Uh, Joseph Smith's successor an important new document that comes to life which I actually scanned and sent him like a um, few weeks before this review came. Um, <laughs> because he notes like how Huggins uh, downplays the Tanner's acceptance of a subsequent Hoffman forgery known as the Joseph Smith Deter Blessing. Uh, Hoffman discovered, quote unquote, this document in early 1981, and Tanner's quickly published the pamphlet uh, entitled Joseph Smith's Successor, an Important Document that Comes Alive. And for instance, they claimed that Wilfred Broderuff was basically lying when he said that Joseph Smith never ordained Joseph Smith Deter or blessed him or to set him apart as church leader. Um, you know, and their assessment of this was, quote, is it obvious that the discovery of a blessing completely destroys President Wilruff's arguments? Uh, in the Tanner's view, the J.S. Deter blessing uh, provides devastating evidence against the Utah Mormon Church. The Tanners, of course, were wrong, but you wouldn't know it from the way Huggins approaches the matter. Uh, the Joseph Smith Deter blessing was a fabrication of Mark Hoffman. It was not real. That didn't stop the Tanners from swallowing it and regurgitating it as evidence against the Church, and that also, the Tanners also capitalized on Hoffman's next discovery, quote unquote, as supposed 1890, 1829 letter by Lucy Mack Smith, but Huggins largely ignores this. Um, it's only when it comes to the issue of the White uh, Salamander letter, where Sander actually believed it was genuine, but Gerald, after he prayed about it, although we're not meant to pray about the Book of Mormon, go figure, yeah. uh, came to the conclusion maybe a forgery. But uh, there were other people, including Bruce McConkie, who kind of uh, smelt her out when it came to at least yeah. that document as well. So, um, I just kind of mentioned this because, like, especially when it comes to, say, portrayals of the Tanners, because, you know, say what you will, like, they're probably one of the more popular critics of the church and so forth. Uh, they're often seen as the heroes when it comes to the Mark Hoffman affair. Uh, they weren't. I mean, they were duped as well, a number of LDS historians and LDS church leaders as well when it came to certain of these documents as well. I mean, again, they wrote an entire booklet, which they don't want to advertise anymore these days for obvious reasons, accepting... Uh, the J.S. Deterred Blessing, and um, thinking it was the death blow to the uh, Utah Mormon Church. Yep. Um, 
but they were wrong. They were wrong about practically everything to do with Hoffman as they were wrong about DJ Nelson, except they were spit when it came to the White Salamander Letter. Yeah. And for those who want like good uh, documentation about the uh, Salamander Letter and other topics, uh, Richard Turley, um, there's a second edition now of his book, Victims, the LDS Church and Mark Hoffman Case. That probably is the best book on the topic. But Signature Books also, also published a very good book as well. Uh, by Linda Solito and Alan Roberts, uh, Salamander, the story of the Mormon yeah, forgery. That's, that's one I have. In 1988. Which I, is, I, yeah, I don't have Which is uh, probably the second best text, but Turley's, I, uh, I think, would, is the best as well. But I, I don't have it was also, By the way, Turley's study and book was actually okayed and sponsored by the church. So that, uh, yep. so the church wasn't hiding things. Um, you know, and again, this kind of goes into what we were saying about the church being open when it comes to its history, um, even in 1992 when the first edition came out. Speaking of books, uh, we have the Book of Mormon coming up as book study. Okay, book recommendations. Let's we we can I, we easily fill the rest of the time here making recommendations okay. for. Well, let's start with the free stuff first. Okay. Uh, Scripture stuff. Central, their archives. They have like copyright friendly versions, of, like various articles and books, such as those by John Tratnas and others. Um, there's also the scholarly scholars archive that has the old scanned editions of the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies and the Farmer's Review of Books. Uh, we haven't done much Book of Mormon stuff at B.H. Roberts yet, but there will be like a number of important uh, projects that will hopefully be published uh, in the next year or two on Book of Mormon stuff. So, uh, yeah, they will be like a lot of the uh, very good free stuff. Uh, Scripture Central, their book and article archives, and also the Interpreter Journal has like a lot of good stuff. Uh, some in print form, but you also can get it for free on the website as well. Yeah. Uh, especially like recently Matthew Bowen's work on uh, Book of Mormon on the Nasticon, the names and wordplays. Uh, I think that would be like a very good stuff to actually go through if you want to like nerd out when it comes to the, the Semitic background of the Book of Mormon. <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure if there's other free stuff or like uh, online stuff you would recommend. No, I think I actually I think you covered things pretty pretty thoroughly there. Yeah. Uh, and, but but let, let me make a big plug for the archive of the the old farm stuff. I mean, I was a very early farm subscriber, and I used to just wait for the. Uh, Farm. We used to be the 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 farms review farms of books, review of books, book books, books on the Book yeah. of Mormon, and then became the Farms Review. Uh, my my new monthly issue would come, and I'd basically sit down and read it cover to cover, and uh, uh, that's how I got to know Dan Peterson and uh, a number of other people. Uh, Lou Midgley is still one of my heroes. Uh, I, I shake his hand and thank him every time I see him at these these various get-togethers. Uh, <clears throat> But that stuff, plus the original be, before before the great coup at the Maxwell Institute, <laughs> uh, the the older version of uh, Journal Book of Mormon Studies when it actually focused on the Book of Mormon and mm -hmm. uh, historical and uh, doctrinal analysis uh, related to its truthfulness and so on. Uh, okay, books. Well, in terms of commentaries, like we can discuss like books and t yeah. specific topics, topics uh, momentarily. But like by a mile, the best commentary on the Book of Mormon is a six-volume commentary by Brian Garner, yeah. which which uh, I understand is on sale right now from Greg Cofford Books. Uh, it will, yeah, I think or there's going to be like a huge discount from like from Thursday onwards as part yeah. of the Thanksgiving they, sale. They have a black. So yeah. if you want to get this. Yeah, this weekend is the time it. to get it. But I agree. I, uh, it's I, called uh, Second Witness Analytical and Contextual yeah. Commentary in the Book of Mormon. It came out originally in 2007. Yep. Uh, there's a number of commentaries, usually doctrinal in the Book of Mormon. Uh, this, however, it does deal with doctrine and a few other things, like uh, textual variations in the manuscripts. But also Brandt, uh, he's a Mesoamericanist uh, and a very talented one. And he discusses um, 
the Book of Mormon in six volumes in very good detail. I'm actually currently in a Mesoamerican, yeah, in a Mesoamerican context. Um, <clears throat> I think he hopes to bring out a second edition someday where it might be ten or twelve volumes, but yeah, <laughs> we don't know if he'll live long enough to do it. Yes. Like, again, like when it comes to say uh, commentaries yeah. on the Book of Mormon by a mile, you have to get it. And Tin is like. Once you get it, it's like a very good reference work. You will never discard it. It will be something that you'll always go back no, to I've, over and over again. I have, I have actually read through the whole thing three times, and I'll, I'll be doing it again since yeah. we're studying Book of Mormon. That's how good it is. And I, I, uh, when I saw Brant at the uh, fair conference, I said, how's my favorite living Book of Mormon author <laughs> or, or uh, scholar? There we go. <laughs> and, and he looked... He looked a little embarrassed and a little pleased, so I think, I think he's great. But, but it, it is truly uh, probably one of the most important contemporary works. I mean, I go back, I reread Nibley. I've got, I've, got, I've got about 40 or 50 books on the Book of Mormon. I go back and reread a lot of them. But his is the one I keep going back to go all the way through and say, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah and he's also out. written like other books that come out <laughs> through Greg Hoford, such as one on the translation process. Uh, one called the Traditions of the Fathers, which is like the Mesoamerican historical evidence yeah. from the six volumes condensed into a single volume, and he also has two volumes that should be coming out this week. Yeah, um, I've got them the pre-ordered. Literary, yeah. yeah, same here on the literary uh, nature of the Book of Mormon. It's composition by Mormon and a host of other things. He basically gave a preview at the fair conference last August. Yeah which I don't think it's online at the moment, but it should be, so that should whet your appetite. But I said, like, uh, they're all done by Greg Covert, and they should have their uh, Thanksgiving sale on Thursday for, like, a few days, between 40 to 60% yeah. off. So definitely do get the six-volume set at the very least. It's an investment. Um, uh, two other things. One is uh, Grant Hardy's uh, study edition of the Book of Mormon, mm -hmm. which just recently came out, yep. uh, <clears throat> which, uh, if, if you're looking... There, there are two th things I'd recommend. One is Grant Hardy's book, if you want that. Frankly, the version I usually use, because my wife and I go constantly through the Book of Mormon, uh, I have both physical and uh, electronic copies of uh, Royal Skousen's Book of Mormon, the earliest text, which is his, his result of his critical text. I also have all his critical text volumes. All, uh, and by the way, all his critical text pr uh, volumes are actually on the interpreter website yep, for they free. Are. Um, it's like if, if Oliver Cottery sneezed while he was writing down a letter, <laughs> you know, you can imagine there's at least two or three pages of yes. detail <laughs> on that. But they're all, they're all uh, available uh, as PDFs on the Interpreter yeah. website as well. But, but the, the earliest text is basically his effort to create what Joseph actually dictated. And he does this uh, by using the printer's manuscript, which exists almost entirely intact. We have the original manuscript, of which we only have about 28%. 20%, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then other evidences and so on. And he very carefully, <coughs> the, the, the multiple volumes that we talked about are him saying, this is why I chose this. Here's as his per yeah. Robert's comment. It's like, okay, here's, here's the thing that's not clear, and I think this is here it is and why it is. And you can accept or disagree. But I, it's, it's my preferred one to read out loud. And it was also published by Yale. Uh, the yeah. second edition came out just last year, and I think the first edition came out in 2009. Yeah. But also, I think uh, Scripture Central or, um, actually have an online version of it. There as you well. go. So. Lots, lots of free online stuff. Um, uh, and also, like uh, when it comes to say um, the Old World Second Book of Mormon, there's a book by Warren Aston, uh, Lehi and Saraya in Arabia. Yes. Um, which again, you, you can 
purchase uh, as a print book, but also I think Scripture Central actually has um, an online copyright-friendly uh, PDF versions of the various chapters. That's probably like the best single book on Nahum and Bountiful and the yeah, issues basically the whole the, the whole first part of the Book of Mormon when you're getting to Bountiful and then yeah. leaving from their sale, for which there is you know for for everyone's complaints. There's a lot of archaeological fit and actual archaeological evidence mm-hmm. for what we have in the Book of Mormon. Uh, and uh, I, always, I, I get great fun of people going through concursions saying, oh, yeah, here's this Arabian map that from 1798 that has the word Nahum on it or, you know, yeah. something on it. It's like, this is, yeah, but, you know. And then, then it, and they say, well, that was just something recent, so you must be wrong and we have all the evidence that, no, Nahum was, as per Neil Rappelai's recent article, Nahum was not just a tribal name. It was a place name in exactly the position that the Book of Mormon Geography puts it in. Yeah, Neil has done excellent work, and he's going to be doing some more work on the topic as well. And when it comes to, say, the New World saying, if you want specific books on that, of course, like there's Brent Garner's uh, one volume, yes. Tradition of the Fathers, which I said is like a uh, condensation of like all the Mesoamerican stuff in the six-volume set. But there's also the very classic book by the late John L. Sorensen, uh, an ancient American saying for the Book of Mormon, 1985. Yep. And then, like, another book that came out in 2013, uh, Mormon's Codex, a Mesoamerican book. Yeah, Mormon's Codex is, is really thick. Uh, there's a thinner one called Mormon's Map, which basically condenses his interpretation of Mormon geography, Book of Mormon geography. Uh, as, as you can tell from, from this show and past shows, Robert and I are not a fan of the Heartland Institute. Uh, <clears throat> not because we, th- we don't think they have a right to their geography. They, you know, I, I have... I have the old farms publication that has like 50 different geographies for the Book of Mormon. Another so, book by Sean Sarson. Yeah, <laughs> another one. By, but th- the point is, is you have to go to the book. You have to go to the book first, which uh, the Heartland Institute specifically says, no, that's not our first priority. Our first priority is what we think are prophetic statements. And then, you know, we'll adapt the book to that. Go on. Oh, and one other book, that should, um, An Intellectual History of the Book of Mormon by uh, Terrell Givens. He's booked by the Hand of Mormon, the American scripture that launched a new world religion. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, it was oh yes, by yeah, the Hand of Mormon. Okay. Yeah, it came out I, I, was, I think I thought I was thinking that was your title. No, by the Hand of Mormon. Yeah, yes, yeah. an excellent one. Uh, yeah, it came out in two thousand one, two thousand two. Yeah. It was actually one of the very first books on Mormonism, let alone the Book of Mormon, I read even when I was not a Latter Day Saint. But like, it's basically an intellectual history of the reception of the Book of Mormon even before it was initially published, yeah. until the publication of Terrell's book in two thousand one came out by Oxford. It's I hope maybe he will do like a revised second edition um, because it's been 20 plus years, but yeah. it's it's an excellent book. If you want like an intellectual history of how the Book of Mormon has been received by critic and believer, it, it's phenomenal. Yep. He also has like a book, uh, one of those like short introduction books by Oxford, the Book of Mormon, a short introduction as well, yep. which doesn't deal with the same material, but like it's a very good entree as well to the Book of Mormon as well. So that would be a good one. Anyway, lots of, there's lots of good stuff out there. Uh, and of course, all this presupposes that you're actually reading the Book of Mormon. Read the Book of Mormon. I've, I've, you know, I won't say how many times I've been through, but it's it's been a lot. <laughs> and i and I know it's been a lot for Robert. Uh, and I like a quote that I ran across just the other day from Morrison Scott Card. Uh, he said, "The Book of Mormon is a deep well." He says, I drink deeply from it, and when I go back, it's just as deep. Uh, and that's my experience. I, I have been through it so many times, and yet going through it, uh, particularly since I'm, I'm usually reading it out loud to my wife, uh, 
I look at things and say, huh, I hadn't noticed that before. Uh, so, you know, to, to, you need to read the book because, and for me, <coughs> uh, and I've said this before, for me, the single most important thing about the Book of Mormon is that it calls me to repentance. Uh, I read it, and I become keenly aware of the gap between me and the Savior and of the need to become more like him. Uh, it really is a, another witness, another testament of Christ.